Not that I am acceptable to God on account of the worthiness of my faith, for only the satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ is my righteousness before God. I can make this righteousness, I can receive this righteousness and make it my own by faith only. So far, our reading from the confession. May God bless the reading of his word and of the confession and also the proclamation of his word this afternoon. Following the sermon, our song of response will be Psalm 107. The stanzas 1, 2, and 12. Beloved brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, over the last number of weeks, you've been reminded of what we confess in the oldest, most basic Christian creed, the Apostles' Creed. Now, if you're new here, you may have learned something new and important about the content of the Christian faith. But most of you, I think, aren't new here. Most of you have known and confessed these truths throughout your lives. We believe in God the Father who created us. We believe in God the Son who redeems us. We believe in God the Holy Spirit who sanctifies us. But as our catechism moves on to consider the Apostles' Creed as a whole, it asks us a very practical question, and that question is this. What does it help you now that you believe all this? Now, this is where we're reminded that this confession is a corporate confession. And so it's a confession that we make together. We make it in unity with the church of all times and all places. But it's also a confession that we make personally. And so we make this confession as individuals who are part of this body. And it's a confession that has a very personal significance because it's an expression of the faith that unites us, that unites you, that unites me, to Christ. And it's by means of that faith that we are righteous before God. And so it's not our faith itself that saves us, it's Christ who saves us. But through faith, we are linked to Him in such a way, in such an intimate way, really, that the righteousness that is His is imputed to us. It's credited to us. And so we can say joyfully some of the most important words that we will ever say, and that is this sentence, in Christ, I am righteous before God and heir to everlasting life. And this is the joyful confession that we make, that we can make. Not because of how upright and holy and, and moral and upstanding we are in and of ourselves, But we can make this confession despite the fact that we deserve none of it. Everything that we receive is more than we deserve, and the opposite, in fact, of what we deserve. And that's what we're going to focus our attention on this afternoon. The fact that even though our consciences may accuse us, and in so many ways we have sinned, we have fallen short, we're not worthy. Our conscience accuses us that we don't live up to our confession. When God looks at us, He sees someone who is righteous because of Christ. 
So the first thing we need to do is consider the human conscience. What is it? What is the conscience exactly? Now, we may not be able to define it exactly. And philosophers have debated for thousands of years what the human conscience actually is. Others claim that the human conscience is just a social, co- uh, social construct. It's a result of social conditioning. It's a result of your upbringing, of what you've been taught. So you believe that certain things are right and wrong because of the way you've been brought up. And you feel guilty when you do certain things because of what your parents taught you or what your group taught you. But we all have one. We all have a conscience. And if you search for the word conscience in the Bible, you'll find that it's the Apostle Paul who speaks the most about the human conscience, the most. And he makes this declaration in Acts chapter 23. He says, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And then in the next chapter, he goes on to add these words. He said, I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. And in First and Second Corinthians, he appeals to his conscience as a witness that he has acted uprightly, that he has told the truth. And then he also appeals to the consciences of his listeners, of his readers. When he teaches about Christian liberty, Christian freedom, what kind of freedom do we have in Christ? And he says this at one point, he asks this question. He says, why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? That's in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 29 and 30. And then in Romans chapter 2, in his letter to the Romans, he tells us what this conscience is. And he says in verses 13 to 16 of that chapter, For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness. And their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. So there's some passages about the conscience. We all have a conscience. That's a universal aspect of what it means to be a human being. And that means that each one of us has the law written in our hearts. And so Paul says, even the Gentiles who didn't have the law, who hadn't received that great blessing from God of of receiving the law from Him, they didn't have that blessing like the Jews did. They knew deep down what was right and what was wrong. When people do wrong, and when they justify their wrongdoing by declaring that they don't believe in God and they don't believe in His Word anyway, they don't believe in His law, so why should they bother obeying it? Well, the fact is, their conscience is still there. They may have, as Paul said, conflicting thoughts. They may have, and they probably do have, a lot of internal turmoil. But the law is written 
on everyone's heart. And that law, what does it show us? Well, we know what it shows us. It shows us we shouldn't worship other gods. We shouldn't make idols. We shouldn't take the Lord's name in vain. We should obey our parents. We shouldn't commit murder or adultery. We shouldn't take something that belongs to us. We should remember the Sabbath day. We shouldn't bear false witness. We shouldn't covet. So the law tells us these things. And that law is written in our hearts. And so we may try to justify ourselves when we do any or all of these things or break any or all of these commandments. But that conscience, that pesky conscience is always there, no matter how much people try to suppress it. Now when we consider the culture that we live in and the cultural currents that are exerting so much pressure on us as individuals and us as the church as a whole, we see in action powerful movements that are working, that are doing their best or doing their worst to actively suppress the truth that are promoting lifestyles that directly contradict God's Word and God's created order. Just to mention one example, we have the whole transsexual movement and the promotion of gender ideology that goes along with it. Now, the people who are promoting these movements and also those who have fallen prey to their message all have a conscience. They are filled, as the Apostle Paul says, with conflicting thoughts that can accuse them at one moment and then excuse them at the next. And the fact is, suppressing the conscience requires a lot of effort. And you can see what that suppression of the conscience does in the lives of those who are the most vocal, the most outspoken in favor of these movements, the most radical. They do battle with the world around them, with the culture around them, with the traditions of that culture. They do battle with those who refuse to praise what God calls sin. But there's an equally important battle that's going on within them as their conscience continues to do its work. But what we confess about the conscience, it has to do with us personally. It has to do with our consciences. We confess that our conscience, conscience accuses us that we have grievously sinned against all of God's commandments. And so we need to first of all consider for ourselves one vitally important aspect of our conscience, a truth about our conscience that serves as a very serious warning for each one of us as God's people. Returning to the Apostle Paul once again, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 4, he wrote this. He said, Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. So for our purposes this afternoon, 
the important words in what Paul says here is that these people are liars whose consciences are seared. So that says something very important about our conscience. It can be seared. And that word means cauterized, something like cauterized or or branded, seared into insensibility. So it's, it's basically burnt with a hot iron, so it deadens its feeling. And we see many examples all around us in this world of exactly this, people whose consciences have been seared, whose consciences appear to be dead. So these people have become insensible. Their feelings have been deadened. Now, if you've ever watched that old Disney cartoon, Pinocchio, you know what Jiminy Cricket said. He said, let your conscience be your guide. But the fact is, we can't just let our conscience be our guide because there may come a time in which our conscience simply doesn't work. If you keep it suppressed long enough, if you keep hammering down on it, it may become so hardened, it may become so calloused that it no longer calls out to you and and it no longer says, hey, what you're doing is wrong and you need to stop and you need to turn away from that activity. We can see this in action in Romans 1, verses 21 and following, where Paul writes, For although they knew God, they had this law written on their hearts, they did not honor Him as God nor give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. And therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity. And he goes on. We also find the same thing in Second Thessalonians chapter 2. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. So God sends that strong delusion. God gives them over. God hardens their hearts, just like he hardened the heart of Pharaoh before the Exodus. So that makes sense of a lot of things that we see all around us. How else could we explain the tens of thousands of abortions that are performed each year in our nation. Doctors and nurses perform these horrific procedures willingly. And some do it throughout their careers and for long careers. How else could we explain the reality of serial abusers, people who throughout their lives engage in practices that are so damaging, so destructive, so horrific, that it's difficult to even think about the things that they've done. So we can see that these people's consciences have indeed been seared. They have become absolutely futile in their thinking. So they become completely deluded. They believe what is false, and they deny what's true. And they don't believe what should be clear and obvious to anyone who has eyes to see and ears to hear. 
Now, brothers and sisters, I said this is important, and it's important, and it's also a little bit frightening. Because it's highly unlikely, when we think about it, thinking back to the issue of abortion, the doctor performing his first abortion, it's highly unlikely that he did so without experiencing at least a pang in his conscience. Now, maybe he had some of those pangs of conscience at first, but then he overcame those pangs and he justified the things that he was doing by imagining that what he was doing was promoting some kind of greater good. Or maybe even considering that his own personal gain outweighed any scruples that he might have. And then there was a the next time. And that next time it became just a little bit easier. It still wasn't pleasant, but it wasn't as bad as it was at first. And then there was the next time, and then there was the next time, until in the end, he doesn't even bat an eye at performing this procedure. And perhaps he actually finds the entire process routine, and he might even find it somewhat amusing or diverting. Brothers and sisters, that's the nature of sin. And when it comes to sin, and when it comes to the presence of sin in people's lives, we do not stand apart from these people whose hearts have been, become calloused and dead. We, like them, are stained with sin. So thanks be to God for working consciences, conscience, consciences that haven't become seared. But at the same time, in the words of 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12, we need to remember this. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands... Take heed, lest he fall. Because as I mentioned earlier, we confess that our consciences too accuse us. We too are still inclined to all evil. And as the saying goes, there but for the grace of God go I. Now those people's actions that I've been speaking about are, are reprehensible. They're grotesque. They're evil, they're wicked, they're abhorrent. They're worthy of the most severe punishment. Their actions should disgust us, make us very sad. They should make us angry. We should be horrified. Because it's good and it's right for us to hate sin. And at the same time, this needs to drive us to action. We can't just stand on the sidelines and allow this to continue because our silence means complicity. We must stand up for those who cannot stand up for themselves, and that's God's command to us. It's not optional. But also, at the same time, the horrors that we witness today among others gives us a hint as to what lives within ourselves. We don't come at to this issue from a place of, of personal pride or inherent superiority. None of us can stand before God's throne and plead not guilty. Not one of us can ever look back over our lives and claim to never have offended God by our disobedience. Even deliberate, flagrant disobedience, high-handed sin against the God who created us and the God who sustains us. None of us can plead not guilty. So stop for a moment and consider your conscience. Does it accuse you? 
that you have grievously sinned against all of God's commandments. Because if it doesn't, then there's a problem, and that's a problem that requires immediate attention. Does your conscience remind you that you're still inclined to all evil? If it does, then that's God's gift. So we do well to pay close attention to what our consciences are telling us. But thankfully, brothers and sisters, we don't stop there. We don't stop there by considering our grievous sins, our failures, and our evil inclinations. And this is the good news. In Christ, as believers, as followers, as disciples of Christ, we are righteous before God and we are heirs to life everlasting. Why? Well, it's not because of any merit of our own, but it's out of mere grace. So God has done something amazing for us. He's granted us Christ's perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness as if we had never had nor committed any sin. And as if we ourselves had accomplished all of the obedience which Christ has rendered for us. If only we accept this gift with a believing heart. Now that message, brothers and sisters, should seem to us to be too good to be true almost. Now it's not too good to be true. And we give thanks to God for that. It is true. But the greatness of what God gives to us out of mere grace only for the sake of Christ should never and we must never underestimate it. The gospel message is that God has a gift for us and the only thing necessary for us to receive that gift is to accept it with a believing heart. To believe in God, trust in His Word. This is the means that God uses to give this most precious of gifts to us as His people. And when we come to Him in faith, when we seek Him, when we seek His forgiveness, when we seek reconciliation with Him through Christ, we are washed clean. All of that that filth, all of that uncleanness, all of the disgusting mess of our lives is, is taken away. It's removed from us as far as east is from west. And so our consciences are awakened. Our consciences are brought to life. And so we see for ourselves, we recognize in ourselves who and what we are by our very nature. We see ourselves in that uncomfortable light of God's Word. Sin loves the darkness. Sin loves to to keep itself hidden and to hide itself away from others. Those who sin, sin at night. But God shines His light into our lives. And that light may be uncomfortable. It's like when you you get up in the morning and the light from the sun is shining in your eyes. That, That may cause some discomfort. Well, multiply that discomfort, and that's the discomfort of having God's light shine on us and revealing everything in us. So we see ourselves in that light. We know ourselves. And when our conscience begins to prick at us, we need to listen to it. We need to seek the Lord, as the prophet said, while He may be found. We need to remember as the prophets also said, that today is the day of salvation. Because 
what happens is if your conscience is accusing you, but yet while your conscience is accusing you, you continue to do the things that it's accusing you about, the activities that are, are leading your conscience to call out to you, if you continue, you'll find that as time goes by and with repetition, your conscience is going to get quieter and quieter and quieter until you can barely hear it anymore. Until the actions that used to bother you no longer bother you like they once did. Now let's consider the Beatitudes in the first part of the Sermon on the Mount. If you have a Bible, you can turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. In Matthew chapter 5, beginning at verse 2, we read this series of blessings, the Beatitudes. And the Lord Jesus is speaking. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And so we follow these Beatitudes, and as we read the Beatitudes, we can follow them as a list with one, each one preceding the previous one. And so what, what happens? Knowledge of ourselves and knowledge of our sin will lead to us being poor in spirit. We'll understand that the only means of salvation is God's grace. And that there's nothing within ourselves that can save us. And then knowing our poverty, that we are poor in spirit, we'll be led to mourn. The second beatitude. We'll mourn over our sin. We'll mourn over the sin of the world. We'll mourn over the effects of sin in our lives and in the lives of others. And that knowledge of sin will lead us to be meek. Blessed are the meek. We'll understand that we're no better than anyone else in ourselves. We'll be humble. We won't be proud. And then we'll be led to hunger and thirst for righteousness. So knowing our sin, we are going to hunger for that righteousness that only King Jesus can provide. And if we hunger we will be satisfied. Now these Beatitudes show us the, the paradoxes of the Christian life, we could say. You will only be satisfied if you hunger. And as you hunger and thirst for righteousness, that hunger is only going to grow. And as you grow in holiness, you're going to mourn more and more about your sins. But at the same time, as you mourn and as you continue to mourn, you will be comforted. 
And the same thing is true for our conscience. Conscience. Your conscience may accuse you that you have grievously sinned. But remember the Apostle Paul's appeals to a good conscience that I read at the beginning of this message. As those who have accepted the great gift of salvation with a believing heart, just like the Apostle Paul did, we, like him, can have a clear conscience. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 12, he wrote this, For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and supremely so toward you. And he didn't make the claim that only he or he and his fellow apostles could say that, were worthy of saying something like this. In 1 Timothy 1, verse 5, he says that, his good, that this good conscience can be characteristic of all of God's people. He says, The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. And so in Christ, we can have a pure heart. We can have a good conscience. We can have a sincere faith. Brothers and sisters, this is a great gift. And yes, our conscience may still accuse us. But that accusation is not our resting point. And we need to remember as well that our enemy, the evil one, Satan, is also an accuser. And so we don't measure the holiness of a person by how miserable that person may be. In Christ, we are made clean. We are righteous before God, and we are heirs of everlasting life. And so that is our motivation to holiness. What God has given us in Christ. And so as people who have been made clean, listen to God's Word. Listen to the conscience that God has given to you. Don't ignore it. Don't suppress it. Don't let it get seared. God is using that conscience to keep you on the right track. So live in the light of God's gracious gift. Fight against sin in yourself, knowing that that sin is forgiven. Put that sin away. Don't let that sin grow in your life. Don't let it, don't let it sprout like a fungus or like a weed. Root it out. Eradicate it. Kill it. Because if you don't, it will kill you. Live for God, knowing the greatness of the gift that He has given to you, and rejoice in God's goodness. Because that goodness really is beyond compare. Amen. Let's now sing our response, Psalm 107, the stanzas 1, 2, and 12.